Exodus chapter 3. This is already our seventh sermon on the book of Exodus. If you can believe it. We saw last time the puzzling ending of chapter 2. That God knew. It doesn't say what He knew. It just says that He knew because He knew everything. And yet, though He knew everything, He still left His people in Egypt to suffer for 400 years or four generations. But at the beginning of chapter 3, God starts to do something about it. And this is how it happened. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, Yahweh, God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we call upon you tonight as the one who dwelt in the bush. 
We ask that you would show yourself to us in the preaching of your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself as a flame of fire. And we beg, Lord, that you would help us to see your glory. Thank you that you acted to save your people because you remembered your covenant. Thank you that you are still acting to save your people, that you still remember your covenant. Father, show us yourself tonight. Help me to preach boldly and powerfully the truth of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last year was a year notable for forest fires, among many other things. A fascinating cover article in Wired magazine discussed the dynamics of some of these new megafires, as scientists call them. Typically, your forest fire, you can predict where it will go, more or less, based on the density of fuel, the slopes, the settlement patterns, and the winds. This past summer, they saw fires so large that they didn't follow any of those predictable patterns. These fires covered several square miles at a time and essentially created their own weather system. And they could linger in one spot for days by sucking in fuel and air and then having this rising column of hot air and ashes that poked up through the stratosphere and then rained hot cinders far and wide, miles away from the center of the fire. The fire grew so big that it seemed to firefighters essentially to be self-feeding, self-sustaining. And according to the scientists studying this, they're only going to get bigger. When you look at the stocks of firewood and dead timber that are out there. I read that article and then I read this about how God appeared to Moses in the burning bush. The peculiarity of the burning bush, of course, is that the bush did not burn up. And that, my friends, tells us something about God. Our God is a self-feeding fire. He doesn't need fuel. He doesn't consume 15 bushes per hour to keep himself going. Unlike the wildfires in the American West that do eventually burn themselves out when they run out of fuel, our God will never run out of fuel. Our text, the first six verses of Exodus 3, shows us that our God is a fearsome, holy fire. That he has a history with our families and that he is powerful enough to burn up even death. So let's look at this text. This is a beautiful text. We start, we're back with Moses here in verse 1. We saw him a few weeks ago as the self-appointed Messiah who struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And then he lapses into obscurity. Forty years in Midian, on the shores of the Red Sea in what is today Jordan, or I'm sorry, on the shores of the Gulf of Aqaba in what is today Jordan. And there, he is not exactly a mover or shaker. Moses kept the flock of Jethro, 
his father-in-law. Moses is 80 years old. I dare say most of us are not planning to still be working for our father-in-law when we turn 80 years old. Moses has not gotten to the place in life where he owns his own flock. He's shepherding somebody else's flock. And what is shepherding? Well, it's not a glamorous job. Essentially, to be a shepherd, you have some sheep or some cattle, and it's your job to protect them and keep them fed and watered. And you just go out into the wilderness, desert with them, and wherever they go, you go. You follow them around 24-7. There's no paid time off, there's no holidays, there's no breaks. Unless, of course, you're rich enough to afford to pay somebody else to take care of the flock. But since the flock represents all of your wealth, or in this case, all of your employer's wealth, somebody has to be there to keep the wild animals away. Somebody has to be there to ensure that the flock doesn't get lost or broken up. Somebody has to be there. Now, most of the time, you're not doing anything. You're just sitting there watching sheep. Not six or eight or ten hours a day, but 24 hours a day. It's not a very glamorous lifestyle. In some ways, it's not a very hard lifestyle. In many countries of the world, even today, five, six, seven-year-olds shepherd the flock. Now, they live in a settled village, but they go out all day, and it's their job to watch the animals and take care of them during the day and then lead them back home at night. Moses ranged further afield. He was out for months at a time. And here he is shepherding. And he comes to this place that we now know, that the narrator knows, is the mountain of God. Now Moses probably did not know that this was the mountain of God. To Moses, this is just another hill out in the desert. Now, as alert readers of the text, when we see this phrase, the mountain of God, the lights go on. Some thoughtful stage decorator has hung a number of light bulbs over the preacher's head for this congregation to make it look like he's always getting good ideas. But if you've read the Bible to this point, if you started in Genesis 1, then you will say, I recognize this pattern. The pattern is called through the waters to the mountain for worship. The pattern begins in Genesis 1, where Eden is a mountaintop. Eden is the mountain. And associated with Eden are four rivers. Adam is created outside Eden and brought into it to worship God. Through the waters, to the mountain, for worship. And then Noah, of course, follows the same pattern a few chapters later. Noah's minding his own business. He finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. He builds the ark. The ark carries him through the waters. And where does it come to rest? On Mount Ararat, through the waters, to the mountain. And what does he do when he gets off the ark on Mount Ararat? He builds an altar and offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Through the waters, to the mountain, for worship. So we've seen that pattern already, and here 
the pattern recurs. Moses deposited in the waters as a three-month-old has come through the waters. Yes, that was 80 years ago, but in terms of the narrative structure here, that was about 15 verses ago, not very long ago. And he's come now to the mountain, and at the mountain, he encounters God. He has a moment of worship. So we'll see this pattern again as Moses replicates the pattern in the life of all Israel as they cross through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai for worship. The pattern happens over and over again, but here is an instance of it. Moses has come to the mountain, and when we see this phrase, mountain of God, we say, aha, the main character went through the waters, the main character has come to the mountain, the next step is that he will worship God at this mountain. And of course, God promises that, not for this time, but for later. Anyway, we'll talk about that in a few moments. What we see is Moses is a shepherd. Not a glamorous job. Not a job that requires very much in the way of brains, or even brawn particularly. Just requires stubbornness. You have to stick to your flock. And he does that. But the Bible is not the story of the wise, smart, spiritually aware, doing wonderful spiritual things and getting their wonderful reward. The Bible is the story of ordinary people doing their everyday things when God comes to rescue them. That's what happens to Moses. He's doing his own job, minding his business, when the angel of the Lord appears to him as a flame of fire. The point is not spiritual sensitivity. The point is God's presence and power. So Moses finds the mountain of God, or rather the mountain of God draws him to itself. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him, your translation probably says, in a flame of fire. The Hebrew can also be rendered as a flame of fire. And I think that's a much better rendering. It's not that the Lord was in the fire, it's that the Lord was showing himself under the guise of fire. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because the text says fire was in the bush and the, fire, and the text says God was in the bush. God as fire. Now, for a very long time, expositors in the church have taken this image of the flame of fire in the middle of the bush and said, aha, this is a symbol of Israel in Egypt. Israel in the fire of persecution. Israel suffering, taking the heat, but not being burned up. I don't think that that's a good explanation. God did not call Moses to the backside of the desert and appear to him as a flame of fire in order to remind him, hey Moses, your people are still suffering. Just FYI. No. God, in the rest of the conversation, tells Moses 
about God. And some other things, incidentally, that Moses will need to know for his job, but the main point of the revelation is who God is. Thus, that's what God leads with, right? His topic, I am the God of your father. Here's who I am. I will tell you who I am. In fact, I will tell you that I am. God doesn't appear to Moses to say, your people are suffering. God appears to Moses to tell Moses something about who God is. And what does the burning bush say about who God is? As I said, it says that God is the self-feeding fire. In the realm of mechanical energy, people have searched for perpetual motion. That thing which will keep itself going constantly without needing any inputs. Well, in the realm of heat energy, the self-feeding fire is the equivalent of perpetual motion in the realm of mechanical energy. Even saying that, right, we understand how impossible perpetual motion is on earthly terms. There is no thing in this world that I can heat which will then remain hot indefinitely without further inputs of energy. If I get it hot, it cools back off. If I start it moving, it slows down and stops. But God is the fire that burns, but does not burn any fuel. The bush is not consumed. In its heat, in its light, in its strength and terror and power, fire is like our God. God is passionate, zealous, eager for the salvation of his people. He is a consuming fire that will, in the end, burn off our sins and purify us for himself. But the fact that he was in the bush and not burning up the bush tells us, again, that he doesn't need fuel. God doesn't have a miles per gallon rating. He doesn't consume bushes or anything else because he is self-fed, self-kindled, self-existent. We've all seen that ordinary fire burns up its fuel and then goes out. God never burns up his fuel and he never goes out. He doesn't take fuel. He is self-feeding, self-subsisting. So in a few verses, in verse 14, he tells Moses that his name is I Am. I am the God who exists. The Greek translation says, I am the one who is. And that name is repeated in Revelation 1 where God says, I am he who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. God is the one who is. He showed that by appearing as the self-feeding fire. So God reveals himself as a flame of fire. Notice the dynamic then in verses 2 to 3. God, the angel of the Lord, appeared to him. That's the objective. The angel shows himself to Moses. And then there's the subjective. Moses looks and sees what God is showing him. They're both right there in verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, so he looked, and behold. God shows himself, that's the truth of Revelation. 
We need to look at what he shows us. That's also the truth of Revelation. The movement from God to you, and then when God initiates with you, you look, you respond, you listen to what it is that he has to say. So Moses, attracted by the sight of the self-feeding fire, turns and looks to see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Many years ago, I watched, well, not many years ago, nine years ago, I watched Cecil B. DeMille's The Ten Commandments. And those of you who have seen that might remember the scene where Moses encounters the burning bush. And that scene stuck out to me so much as I watched the movie because most of the dialogue, of course, is the product of the imagination of 1950s Hollywood. And much of it sounds remarkably silly today. But in the movie, suddenly Moses opens his mouth and he quotes this verse, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. And I at least just sat up and wow. Now there's a line that hasn't gotten old. The self-feeding fire is of a beauty calculated to attract human attention. God specifically manifested himself as fire so that Moses would say, I want to see that. God initiates this conversation. When the Lord saw that he turned to look, God called to him, from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. God is the self-feeding fire, but He's not fire in the sense of an impersonal force. He's fire that knows the name of His servants, that calls to Moses by name. He seeks us first. He starts the conversation. He shows Himself to us when we're walking around minding our own business. And what does God lead with? As Moses says, here I am, and then God says, stand back, take off your shoes. God does not start with, it's really good to see you, Moses. Or, Moses, I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Or, Moses, I have good news for you. Today is the day when you're real calling to deliver the people. No, God starts with this very prickly, stop, stand back, shoes off. Why? Why does God do that? Well, the answer is, obviously, given at the end of the verse, the place is holy. God is not saying, Moses, we're in a holy place. I have to respect its holiness. You have to respect its holiness. That's not the idea. No, God is saying, I'm holy. I made this place holy. And I set the terms of access to my holiness. And we need to be clear about that up front. We're not going to say hi. We're not going to say long time no see. I'm not going to start with the introduction, right? 
After he gives the command, he says who he is. I am the God of your father. But he starts with, I am holy, and you are going to respect that. Do what I say now. Because that's our God who's the self-feeding fire. He is a fearsome God who announces His holiness and sets the terms of approach to that holiness. When you hear this command, when you hear a command like stand back and take your shoes off, is your first thought, why? Or is your first thought, my God is holy and I need to respect that? People have tied themselves in many kinds of knots trying to figure out what's special about shoes. Nothing is special about shoes. The command has to do with God setting the terms of approach to his holiness, which of course most of Exodus is about. From chapter 20 onward, it's all about how to come into the presence of the holy God. Shoes are not an issue there. God's going to tell us how to build the sanctuary, how to dress correctly, how to offer sacrifices correctly, how to come into his presence correctly. We'll get there. But he starts his acquaintance with Moses with this reminder, I am holy. And you will treat my holiness with respect or I will kill you. I don't think of God as cuddly. He's kind. He's loving. But he says up front, you aren't going to do what you like and call it worship. You aren't going to make up moral rules that seem good to you and call that holiness. That is not acceptable for followers of this holy God. Worship, approach to God, holiness, these things are on his terms. And he makes that clear from the very first word, stand back. Shoes off. And then he dominates the conversation. Just notice verse 5. Then he said, verse 6, moreover he said, verse 7, and the Lord said. Right? All three of these could have been part of the same speech. Why does the narrator back off and break the flow each time to remind us God said, God said, God said. Well, because God dominates the conversation. He's a great listener. That's the truth of prayer. But he is also very open in revealing himself, and that's the truth of revelation. God says, and he says, and he says. And of course, if you read the rest of the conversation, I think this may be the longest conversation with God in the Bible goes from verse 7 through verse 17 of the next chapter. Well, it goes from, I'm sorry, from verse 4 through verse 17 of the next chapter. God does the vast majority of the talking. And what does he say in this conversation? Well, after he's made his holiness clear, he then says, Moses, I have a history with your family. I am the God of your father. I'm the God of Amram. 
your father. I'm not an unknown God. I have been part of your family since forever. Because he then, God then names not just Moses' father, but Moses' what? Great great grandfather Abraham and Isaac and then Jacob. And each time he repeats that I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Clearly, there's something very significant in this phrase, being the God of. Otherwise, he wouldn't repeat it four times. What does it mean to be the God of? Well, it means that God is in covenant with you. If you go back to Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, I make my covenant with you to be your God, to be God of you and of your seed after you. Being God of means that God has bound himself to the person he's God of in this possessive relationship. And the possession goes both ways. I am your God. You are my people. God says to us, but we say to him, you are our God. We are your people. Those possessive pronouns, ours, yours, mine. God says them about everyone he's God of. And we, in turn, then say them about the God who is our God. And this being God of travels down family lines. To say, I am the God of your father means, and I will be your God too. I bound myself to your father Amram, now I bind myself to you. And this being God of is not a temporary arrangement. When God becomes your God, he means it forever. And thus, in arguing with the Sadducees about the resurrection, Jesus quotes this passage. He says, in the passage about the bush, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but God of the living, because all live to him. Therefore, there will be a resurrection. Not, I was the God of Abraham 400 years ago when Abraham lived, but I am the God of Abraham. If God consents to be your God, he will not let you go even if you die. If God is your God today, then you will rise from the dead. Because he will never let you go. He will always hang on to you and remain your God. That being God of conquers death. Our passage ends with a reminder that though God does triumph over death, He is fearsome. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Some of the more snarky commentators, of course, have to point out that Moses obviously was not afraid to talk back to God. which he proceeds to do repeatedly for the the rest of this encounter. But nonetheless, if you think you would not have hidden your face, you don't understand the fearsomeness of the self-feeding fire. 
It was not the burning bush. It was the God in the bush that terrified Moses. God is not safe. He's not cuddly. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be devoured. Zephaniah 1.18 So Moses saw the holiness and the awesomeness and he didn't want to see it anymore. It was too much for mortal eyes to look on. He covered his face. In other words, if you know this God who appeared as the self-subsisting fire, then you will walk in the fear of God. You will be afraid to offend Him or violate His holiness. And if you don't fear your God, you're not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're worshiping some idol who is not so holy and who does not control His holiness and access to His holiness like this God does. God appeared to Moses. God brought him through the waters to the mountain for worship. And God showed himself as the self-subsisting fire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, show us yourself. Lord, we don't ask that you would appear again in a burning bush as awesome and as holy as that would be. We praise you that you have appeared in something greater, more glorious, more holy. You have appeared in a human being like us, whose name is Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to see you as the self-subsisting fire, that you would help us to worship you as that fire, that you would help us to love and adore you as the God who dwelt in the bush and as the God who is our God and who delivers from death. Lord, we pray that you would be with us in the new year. In the name of Jesus, amen.